Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and I've got a special guest who we've actually got a little bit of in common, Go Bills. Uh, we're both from Buffalo, and uh, I'll let JP tell you a little bit more about how we're even closer than that. Uh, but our episode today is on security data pipeline, or how do we modernize or SOC ingest? Uh, and so, JP Bourget, welcome yeah. to the CISO Tradecraft podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, as I mentioned, we had a little bit in common. Obviously, you're both in Buffalo. I'm in Buffalo last week for mom's birthday. And uh, so, uh, by the time this episode drops, hopefully Buffalo's already beat Kansas City, but we, uh, we've had a pretty good oh, yeah. run. But beyond that, uh, but tell us a little bit about yourself, like you know where you went to school and cool stuff that you've done because you've got a really fascinating background. Yeah, so, so it's funny. I usually start out with RIT, you know, college, but in this case, um, we, we actually grew up in like literally the same neighborhood and uh, in Snyder, New York, which is a part of Amherst uh, outside of Buffalo. And we went to the same grammar school, although I think you were 20 years ahead of me. Uh, hey, 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 and hey. <laughs> maybe 18, 17 years ahead of me. Uh, and I went to high school with your sister yeah. uh, at, at Amherst Central. And um, yeah, which is just crazy to me. And, um, you know, like I knew who you were way before you knew who I was because you were doing, was a Hacker Jeopardy back in the day at DEF CON, mm -hmm. like my first DEF CON. Hacker you know, like, Jeopardy. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I, with Vital, Vanna, and all that stuff. And uh, I'll never forget all, I'll never forget those days. When I was 21, I moved out of Buffalo. I went to Rochester, did some restaurant management crap. And uh, that led me to not wanting to work in restaurants for 30 years. Um, and uh, so, so I went back to school. Uh, when I was 24, I went to a community college in Rochester called Monroe Community College, led me to RIT, which uh, led me to, you know, a bachelor's in IT and then a, a master's in cybersecurity. And up until this past weekend, I had never met anybody who had a cybersecurity degree prior to me in 2008 in a master's. And I met somebody who had one from JMU, James Madison University, in 2002, which is like bonkers to me. But like I used to teach there as adjunct faculty. It was interesting when they stood that program up, I think it was 97 or 98. Um, I remember uh, the gentleman who had done so, he said, G. Mark, would you like to come help us, you know, teach this program? I said, sure. He said, well, where's your PhD from? I said, well, I don't have a PhD. Said, okay, well, where's your master's from? Well, at the time, I didn't have one. Sure. I got a couple yeah. out. And he said, you know, you could design this entire program, but I can't let you teach because of the way that the rules are in the university setting. And so it wasn't until years later that I came back as adjunct faculty. But yeah, it was a uh, one of the very first programs that had cybersecurity in the title. And what I used to tell the students is that you're going to be the only person sitting at the table, if you're even at the, uh, the executive table, as a C-level, with cybersecurity in your degree. Right. So as a result, you need to know this stuff. So sorry for the inject, but yeah, they've been around for quite a while and did, it did quite well. No, it, it was just, you know, like, and I had, you know, I, I just, I didn't know. So, so I knew that Norwood university in Connecticut had a degree and but anyway, so, so fast forward a couple of years, I graduated away. I was an adjunct in RIT for a while that in 2012, um, uh, in 2011, um, Bruce, Bruce and Heidi and I had, uh, like basically had a really crazy miscommunication. And for those who don't know, uh, Bruce Potter and Heidi Potter from Smootcom, um, is the least of what they do. But, uh, I had said, yeah. Bruce. And should, and, we, should we tighten up the overlap further? My son used to babysit for him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. That's all. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, I emailed Bruce one day and I'm like, 
hey, we should do a bike ride at DEFCON. And I get a reply like 20 minutes later. I was like, dude, like DEFCON's <laughs> in like a month. There's no way we can ride a bike to DEFCON. I'm like, no, I was just saying, let's do a bike ride there. And so that turned into let's let's bike across the country or let's bike to DEFCON. Then the, we'll might as well finish the ride. And uh, uh, in, 20, in 2012, I went to my boss and I said, hey, I need next summer off. Another Christ the King grad. Um, and uh, he's like, well, no, you can't have next summer off. So I'm like, all right, well, and I went to DEF CON. I met Mike Murray from Matt Security, who, you know, rest his soul. Uh, and he he got me uh, into the consulting world. So I, I did a couple of try before you buy gigs. And, you know, I had been teaching and all that. So uh, 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 one thing led to another in January 2013, you know, end of 2012, quit my job, flew 108,000 miles around the world, did the bike ride. Uh, and then in 2013, well, I was, you know, I was, I was flying around the world, um, I guess, unfucking send deployments. I don't know how else to put it. And, uh, and, and I, I observed that people or teams, security teams, they have the people, the process, the skills, the tools, the technology to really like respond to alerts and handle incidents. So uh, we didn't know it at the time, but we started building what I would call, a, an I, at the time it was an IRP platform or instant response platform. And... Uh, as I started to kind of get clued into the market, there's a couple couple folks doing that. Like there's the old school, you know, Jira's been around forever, but like there's Request Tracker, RTIR, which is like their IR module. There was um, Resilient. They were Co3 systems at the time that became Resilient. And so uh, so we started building this, you know, case management for the soft product. Uh, and so I, I um, ended up moving to DC, went through an accelerator called Mach 37, uh, which was awesome. As, what, when did you do that? Because I did mine in spring of 2014. So I did mine in the fall of 2014. That's right. You're at 14. You got the cool name for the. Yeah, I forgot that we both club. did that together. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. This is one of these. Yeah. It's been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that's where I met Gall, right? Who who uh, uh, did the prior <laughs> data data pipeline uh, show with you. And, uh, yeah, so a little inject right here. CISO Tradecraft, episode number 118, Data Engineering with Gal Sponsor from February 27, 2023. It's up on our website. Yeah, and, and I would say Gal predates me in, like, data pipeline work. Um, like, uh, but, but we definitely uh, talk all the time. He has a lot of great thoughts on, on the problem space. Um, but, but it wasn't really a problem space 10 years ago. Um, any, anyways, fast forward to 2020. We ended up, uh, you know, so, so, so we'll... I guess we'll stop in 2015 for one second. Started my company was Security, and like SYN Security, and we uh, ended up uh, building that IRP product. We raised money, did Mach 37, and then um, uh, in 2017 I hired a growth CEO. And in 2015 and 16 was like when the SOAR market started to kind of become a thing. So the SOAR stands for Security Orchestration Automated Response, and and really like Gardner would say that the four pillars of that are orchestration, automation, case management, and ticketing. And, um, you know, I've, I've spoken on other podcasts about, like, how interesting, like, like how the SOAR market has had a last mile problem for a while. And as, you know, like, in my opinion, MSSPs are some of the best beneficiaries of SOAR, but they really just need orchestration as a service. They don't actually need the full SOAR suite because they already have ServiceNow or Jira. They're doing ticketing. They're doing threat and tell. So, um, so let me throw a little quick timeout on the field right now. Yeah. So let's throw a little bit of background for those who are not using SOAR. Help them understand a little bit about what, you know, why would you have SOAR? What does it do for you? 
And under what circumstances would, if you didn't have it, you would say, um, guys, we need to go ahead and look at this technology. Yeah. So, so here's what I'll say is, is, is I believe that, well, so SOAR stands for security orchestration, automation response. And, and so, so which started out as, Hey, like the ticking systems that existed in 20, in the 2010s wasn't cutting it for security use cases. Um, and, and before we get into actual SOAR, I'm going to share what I think is the, the most successful orchestration platform out there, which is HubSpot. So HubSpot took literally like a bunch of people who hate process. They don't want to enter stuff. They don't want to use the system. And they made it so easy for sales guys and marketing guys to essentially uh, automate their world and get the data entry needed and just make make really good things happen. And um, you know they've solved the problem that many other industry you know, uh, you know, industries have, have really struggled to to wrap their heads around it and do elegantly. So, so I look at them as you know, in, in 2014 they were way better than what SOAR is today, in in my opinion. And so, so think of the same type of workflow automation in, in the security operations center. So, so you know, our marquee use case, man, it was 10 years ago, uh, was phishing triage. So, so we would have a you know, you'd have this user submitted phishing email box. We would consume that email. We'd pick it apart. We, you know, look for indicators. We'd look for malware. We'd sandbox it, and we, you know, we provide a disposition, or the goal is to either convict or an, acquit an alert, right? And so we would provide a disposition on that, and then that turned into, well, what if it was convicted and it is a true puzzle? Well, then we send that into an incident workflow, and and so that, you know, it started out with that, and then all of a sudden you want to start to automate all that stuff, and so, uh, you know, when Fast forward. So it's automating your playbooks. You've automating got security, your playbook. security playbooks. You yep. had, you know, you tear a sheet and do this, this, this. Now we're saying, hey, let all this stuff take place. It's going to be faster. It's going to be automated, which means it's going to be done the same way every single time, which means you're not going to miss stuff. You're not going to forget something on a checklist. Yeah. And I'm guarded in saying, like, what's the perfect use case? Because what I've experienced when, when a team that's used to doing things manually tries to move to automation, there's two in-between steps that nobody realizes. The first one is that you actually have to have well-documented processes. And a lot of folks have pretty decent documented processes, but once you have well-documented processes, you then need to go re-document them and figure out what are these micro decisions you're making along the way that the computer can, you know, the system can't infer. So once you figure that out and you have like these atomic actions of everything that's happened, then you can actually start to turn that into automation. And, uh, you want to, and, you want and there's to an in? important point you made there that SOAR is not just go ahead and you know st stick disk one into drive A, hit enter, and you've automated your entire response. It requires a lot of customization, a lot of understanding yeah. to be able to get this raw tool set there. You know, it's a box of tools, but you've yeah. got to go ahead and put them in the right order for it to do what you want it to do. And as you cool. tune it and refine it and something changed or modified, you got to tweak it. But it really puts your uh, sock on steroids in terms of when something hits the fan, so to speak. Um, you can go ahead and go a lot quicker and perhaps with even fewer people that happen to be there because it's two in the morning. Yeah. And, and so, so so I describe that as like the last mile problem. So like a lot of sword vendors have, you know, they have all these playbooks and workbooks and integrations and things. And uh, those are great. But as soon as your Jira has a custom field in it, it might break it. Right. So there's all these things that could possibly go wrong. And so, so you know, as a vendor, as a, as a as running a startup, 
that made customer acquisition costs expensive or or else there's lots of pro serve that had to go on in order to get you know, those use cases deployed. And so what I'll say is that if you can get over those, if, if you can get past the last mile problem, if you have the money to invest in actually automating the right use cases, because a lot of folks want to automate use cases that might not have the, the ROI on them. Like they, they're sexy use cases, but but they may only run five times a month. They might be highly visible, but you know what's the point of spend $100,000 to automate something we do 30 times a year for something we do 3,000 yeah. times a year? Um, it's this more mundane. So, uh, so, so yeah. So, so anyways, in 2020, sold security. Um, I told it, you know, I haven't done, I, I've done a lot of SOAR advisory work, but I haven't, you know, touched a lot of SOAR uh, over the past few years. Um, some of my team has done a lot of work with it, but I uh, um, started a company called Blue Cycle and uh, we kind of do four things. So so we do a lot of SecOps maturity and advisory. Or, I'm sorry, SecOps maturity work. We, we go in and advise MSSPs and enterprises. And, and we're trying to uh, really look at what they're doing today. What, what let's say, the top 10% of, of the... Uh, the players in the in the blue team world are doing uh and it's slightly different for mssps and and enterprises where what one's um one's becoming more economically motive, motivated in the enterprise but they've traditionally been risk motivated where mssp is motivated by economics and you know number of alerts per, per day and margins and, and and different things but uh yeah they, they, at the end of the day they still care about a lot of the same things and so uh you know, we, we go in and look at what folks are doing and, and we, we have like a thought model we, we put in front of them and we, we try to help them, help, help meet them where they are and identify some low-hanging fruit or maybe, uh, you know, like what can we do in year one? What What does your one, three, five-year plan look like on uh, kind of getting to, to that next level of not just efficiency, but like uh, things like, are you doing detectors engineering in source control? Is there a process? Um, and one of the things I love to talk about is um, well, the, the next thing we do is secure data pipeline modernization, and I'm going to characterize two parts of it. So first, the first off is like, go back to 15 years ago when, you know, Splunk used to have these ads saying, hey, you should send everything to Splunk. I'm going to, you know, it's like the game of how much data can you get into Splunk or whatever your sentence. And now we've gone to today where, you know, ingest is utility. It's, it's you know, it's a consumption model. And, uh, so, so what happened after 15 years of doing that? Well, a lot of enterprises have essentially made their system of analysis in Splunk also their system of record. And that's the most expensive way you could make a system of record considering the other technologies that are available today. So now explain briefly system of record. So if I think of um, ways to store data, um, any any system that the data is hot, it's queryable instant, you know, almost instantly. The cost to store and operate and query that data is higher. Uh, but then I have all these other things like Snowflake, S3, blob storage, basically blob storage or block storage up in the cloud. That's pennies on the dollar compared to the cost to throw it in my system of analysis. Now, when I think of like in the SOC or in 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 Defenderland, we generally need a set of stuff to uh, query and trigger alerts, uh, and then we need stuff for let's say long-term retention, like maybe it's compliance. Uh, a lot of times it's compliance combined with the ability to go investigate things from, you know, greater than a year ago. Um, so one of the things we talk a lot about it is, um, hey, uh, if we are uh, defining security alert use cases, those inform one or more detection use cases, and th that informs our log ingest use cases. 
or like what we need to actually ingest. And so when we can start to put rigor around that, you know, like there's more to it, but like, you know, high level, when we can start to put rigor around that, uh, we're able to actually be smart about what we're sending to like our most expensive ingest versus what we're sending to our our system of record, our long-term stores that we can kind of go get later when we need it. Um, so, so, so that's, you know, kind of a preview to some of the security data pipeline modernization work we do where, where we, we use a, a product called Cribble most of the time, but we, we, we can do it in other ways. Uh, the way, the reason we like using Cribble is because if I, if I go do like a pipeline modernization in Splunk and I'm doing transforms and reduction in Splunk or in, in the SIM tool, I need a much more expensive person after to really maintain that. So I still need a senior Splunk guy to maintain that, where if we can do that in a tool like Cribble, we can have a junior engineer like curating and maintaining that, that data pipeline it is kind of like a low code set of functions where um, if I'm doing it in a sim, I still need that like person with 10 years experience who understands not just like the data, but like Linux and services and the network, all that kind of stuff. So it's not just Splunk saying, hey, I want to make more money off of my people. We're going to make it so complicated. You have to have an engineer, but it's the nature of the fact that this is an operating sim and it's got all these moving parts as compared to something that's in cold storage or close to it in a data lake where there's a lot less going on. And therefore, as you said, you can use a junior person. Is that kind of a fair analysis? Oh, kindness. So so more of like, think of it this way. Um, when I need to do ingest traditionally, I would have to configure my products to send to one or more places. Most products only send to one place. Like like if you look at the old, you know, so, so like, yeah, like Cisco firewalls may able to send to lots of places for a while. But like if you go to a lot of SaaS apps, you can send to one destination. Um, you know, today I think you can send a lot more, but, but it hasn't always been the case. So the other problem is, is if I need to switch a destination, I need to go through change control. I need to actually change the configuration of a product. Well, if you put a uh, cribble in the middle, essentially once we're sending the cribble, we can do whatever we want with that data, including multiplex it without touching the IT infrastructure, without touching the security infrastructure. So, so, uh, you'll have one piece of, you know, one event that comes in. It goes down like a, a table that will filter. Hey, if it, if it's Cisco SA sends this pipeline, which may change it from you know Ceph to JSON or Syslog to JSON, and then sends to Splunk, or then sends it to Sentinel, um, and then it can go down again. And then oh, we th- this is uh, to send to the uh, to the data lake or to S3. We're just going to send the raw event out, and so and then then we want to do a sim bake off and like try out another product. Well, we can just add another route and then send it to that destination without having to modify all the other destinations. And what's really cool is not only can I filter and multiplex it, I can, I can, um, uh, like I can do things like say, hey, I need these Windows event IDs to go to the sim, and I want all my Windows event IDs to go to S3. Um, but I can also replay that back from S3, like in 18 months, like it just happened, and I could also reduce the size of the logs. So like. If you look at a Windows event, every Windows event has like those two paragraphs at the bottom of the event log. Well, we don't really need to ingest those into our SIM, right? So like in some cases, like the design of like the legacy design of things has, you know, created unneeded expense. But like my favorite example is like, this comes up over and over again. It's like a Palo Alto log, like a pan traffic event has like 35 fields. The sock part is like 13 of them, maybe 14 of them. And so, so we can, you know, reduce the, the size of the event by like 50, 60% and ingest. Um, and so, so look, I'm never going to say that I can help you reduce your SIM bill, but we can definitely help you plateau it and get more value for your current spike. 
Right. So there's actually an efficiency that's gained from a couple of things. Number one is, of course, is reducing the amount of stuff you're going to store. And then secondly, where you're going to store it in terms of its availability. And then actually in a third way, the technical requirements for the person who's going to be doing it, having to be this much seniority, this much experience versus somebody here could do an adequate job. And then this part of their career pipeline where they get really good at that and then they can qualify for better stuff. For sure. Yeah. So it sounds, it sounds like a win-win-win. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, we're seeing this at, at some scale you wouldn't believe like um you know we we you know a lot of folks will start out like you know with 500 megs or five, sorry 500 gigs or terabyte of daily ingest but like we've seen you know people doing like into the petabytes of ingest which is just crazy um so 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 one of the things that was really interesting to me that's come up through this whole data uh security data pipeline thing is you know, with Cribble or not, or any other, you know, like like you have Vectors, Datadog, I'm sure you've heard of Logstash. There's all these other tools that can get data out of systems too, but uh, but they don't work with everything. And so so we, we've started to build a lot of uh, custom code, not custom code, but like really we have a lot of uh, integration like patterns to consume a lot of the major like SaaS products, like things like Salesforce that are kind of, wonky to get that out so like i might need to go and like say hey what what reports do you have for me and then it'll give me a list of links to csv files that i have to go transform them right so so um things that like like when you get to really high volume polling like your octalogs um you might be getting so many events per second that you actually need to put some resiliency in that to make sure you're not missing those 10 events that was somebody you know uh breaching 2fa or something um so, so we do a lot, like my team and I do a lot of work around essentially building the the AWS or the Azure infrastructure to uh, add MSSPs and, enterprise, and enterprises to do ingest at scale. And, and then a lot of times we'll just then send it to Cribble, but, but we're able to, you know, add add a lot of uh, precision and, and, you know, guarantees that we're not dropping logs and we're doing it in a lossless fashion um, uh, when it comes to like pulling APIs. Um, and then the, the other thing we've been working on, which, uh, I think is interesting is we started to build a, uh, well, like we're doing like integration factories for, for vendors. So as we've done so much of this integration work, we've shipped probably a thousand instances of integrations in the past like two years. Um, and so it turns out that a lot of startups, they don't, um, like they have product folks. So then they go find product market fit and then all of a sudden, you know, then they hire sales folks and they start to need uh essentially like they have inbound requests for integrations well these product guys they know the product but they don't know the security data ecosystem they don't know all the apis and so you know i, I almost look at us as we're kind of like a dev shop but we're also security smees where you know we know the data we, we we've made the mistakes we fixed them we've made other mistakes we've you know gotten past those and, and we know a lot of the a lot of the main tools, like probably the top two hundred tools we've worked with, you know, many times. So we can help accelerate their go to market, or really, actually, I say we can accelerate their time integration, um, so they can land customers. And, and you know, we've both done startups, and and you know, one of the key things in like uh, early startups, uh, key friction, you know, how do I say this? a common friction point in startups uh, trajectories is their ability to integrate with third-party products to like add value to what they're trying to do. So it's really not just a matter of grabbing an API and saying, Hey, we'll just plug it in there. And it's just, you know, real simple red wire to red wire, blue wire to blue wire. 
Um, because if you're building something as a small business owner, you actually have to build your own device and you have to decide, hey, are these inputs and outputs sufficient to do what you want to do? If you want to do something beyond that and your API that's providing your inputs doesn't give you what you need, how do you solve that problem? You said, hey, I, you know, for whatever reason, maybe I wanted something that's just not being captured in the logs or a prior decision was made uh, to say, hey, we're going to create skinny logs, uh, which is great. But the problem with the skinny log is a little bit later, you say, hey, I need something that's a little bit more robust and it's just mm-hmm. not there. Sometimes it's a, if it's a lossy compression. Now, as you said, the Microsoft paragraph at the bottom, if it's the same paragraph for the same message up here, I only really need to take the code. I don't yeah. need the whole paragraph explaining what that code is. So that's that's loss less, right? I can compress that and I don't lose a single bite of knowledge because I can rehydrate it, so to speak, and put it back in there. But it's an interesting challenge when you say, I've got financial or bandwidth or storage constraints. I'm going to have to limit what I'm going to store. And then would I have to reinvestigate something or there's a long, slow attack that all of a sudden I realize, wow, this bad actor might have been here for a while. Um, any tricks that you found out to be able to come back and do that? Because I know there's some interesting stuff on Microsoft with respect to their telemetry. And we we're talking about that in our pre-show uh, about uh, maybe Microsoft had held back a little bit because we found some of these federal government intrusions that took place. And the answer seemed to be, oh, well, if you were subscribing to our E5 and our P2 licenses, you would have had all that telemetry. But because you had a cheaper package, uh, we, we just didn't give it to you. Um, and, and so there's, there's two questions there. One for the developer of a product, how do you get the information you don't have? And the second one, which I want to delve into a little bit, is that what happens if your vendor basically says, oh, we'll give you that, but it's going to cost you and that exceeds your budget. Is it you know, bad on the vendor for trying to upsell you for something that would be necessary? It's like, oh, you need an engine with that car after you've paid for it? Sorry about that. Or... Is it something that it's kind of a standard practice? What are your, what are your thoughts, sir? Yeah. So, so I heard I heard four things. I think the, the key thing I heard is like when we think of like a vendor or other or, or just like an enterprise trying to find what's going on, like we're always looking for the um to to find the most value out of the situation for them. So, so if I'm a if I'm a sock, and uh, you, you know, a lot of this is religion too. So, like I I will. A lot of times recommend hey like you should keep these logs uh and send them to your sim because because like there's only 500 a day but they like provide very interesting context where like I, in a lot of cases i believe firewall logs can go right to s3 and you can really easily write code to go retrieve them for 32 times a day you need them now if you look at a splunk bill or a sim bill a third it's very common for like a third of the ingest to just be like network traffic or like you know firewall logs so like what we'll do is we'll say hey we're gonna take power logs but we're gonna we're only gonna take the ones that tell us that there's risk or you know like like a a wildfire alert or a you know a, a malicious url or something we're gonna send everything to the system or you know to the to the data lake and we'll, we'll create when we need it now that's not okay for a lot of people not everybody's there yet uh which is okay uh but we, we always try to think of like, what's the, the best way to like use the money we have, use the resources we have to get the best outcome for that particular team. So, so the next thing is you pointed out like, Hey, well, you were talking about like, Hey, we might have some logs that, that because we're reducing them, we're losing some data or we're sending a crappy, you know, ACP log format or something. Um, like what's really interesting is that as APIs have matured over the past five years, 
uh, and people have really interesting requirements. Uh, in some cases, like it's a graph-based API uh, where you can kind of pivot around and kind of pull back what you need immediately. But but there's many times where you have to do two or three calls to the API to get what you need out of it. Now, what's happened in like, especially the EDR space is that's matured into a query language where I can say, you know, give me everything, everything that includes this, but filters that out, but does this too. Uh, but, but in a lot of cases, we still need to go like query a product, like for a device ID that has, you know, this known, uh, that has like a known vulnerability on it or a known alert on it, but then we need to go get context on that device ID. And then we need to get context on the alert. And that might, and sometimes that's one big fat JSON payload. In other cases, we have to go do a bunch of queries to do that. So, so knowing that and, and, you know, matching that with whoever's the requirements are, whether it's a vendor or stock or whatever, um, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And, and well, I, you know, anybody can figure this out. A lot of times it's about speed to outcome and we can help, you know, we generally are able to do that in a day or two, where a lot of times it'll take teams months just need to get access to the products. So, uh, so that, that makes it interesting too. So you're talking really about security pipeline or data pipeline approach, which is basically what we were talking about. How do you set up this plumbing? How do we take all the possible event or log generating things, uh, select yep. from them with the knowledge of the enterprise, what it is that's going to contain information that we care about, uh, parse those out into some areas, some things that we say, like firewall log, just throw them right into the S3 bucket because if you need them every now and then, you can look at this up or look up that. You might have something that could be um, a lot more intensive in terms of having to take a careful look at it and things like that. And some stuff you might just want to throw into Glacier and say, yeah, well, if you ever have to thaw it out, we'll look at it. Well, and, um, and look, it there's a lot of nuances there, Gmark. So, like, if I have Splunk Cloud, um, I get, uh, like, the standard retention periods one year. So, you know, a lot of folks will go and send to art like deep you know deep glacier whatever it's called glacier storage right away because they know that they're you know why pay for it for a year if they can get it in right now another nuance would be hey we're a small shop and we don't have the resources to go pull stuff from s3 all the time well then you might send your firewall logs to your sim because you just need them there and like because you're not a huge shop it's not that cost prohibitive but if you're a thirty thousand endpoint you know organization all over the world well, like your your network traffic be a lot bigger than a three hundred seat company, right? So, so so there's a lot of nuance to it, and like and you know it all depends on the security team and and, and what where, what they're comfortable with and the CISO and and what they're comfortable with, uh, and, and really the history of what's happened to that company, right? So so if they've had a breach and they didn't have their firewall on, so that would have told them who patient zero was, then I'm pretty sure they're probably going to invest in in having those firewall logs pretty handy. If they've never had that particular experience before, or if they have a developer who can write the tooling in Splunk or Sentinel to go pull those logs on demand whenever there's a particular type of alert, well, then they're probably going to do, you know, put it to the more cost-effective storage. All right. That makes good sense. So I think the lesson from here that I'm trying to distill out is not one size fits all. It's, it's not. It's really going to depend both on your size, your scope, you know, what you're doing. Your, your, your uh, appetite for regulatory investment. requirement. Yeah, yeah and regulatory yeah. requirement. Yeah, and your appetite for investment across certain parts of your security organization. And in your experience, have you found that organizations that choose to do a more robust logging and ability to go ahead and provide more rapid retrieval, do they do that because it's good 
for a security planning purpose or do they do it because something went wrong? And then typically you only see people responding when they realize, oops, we could have done this better. We better do it better. It's because someone's looking over our shoulder. Um, you know, you know the answer to that. It's all over the board, right? You know, a lot of, you know, a, a buddy of mine who's a CISO is like, I have never had more money to spend than after we got breached, right? You know, a lot of times yeah. organization, you know, the CISO gets a blank check for the next year because of the, you know, the shock and awe of the ransomware or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, that short-term blank chat doesn't necessarily solve the systematic problems in the organization. And if you, you know, so, so the way I look at the, I guess the way I look at this is that it really depends on what the, what the culture and the makeup of the board is and are they driving this so so is this driven by a culture or is it driven by compliance and regulations and and so for a CISO who's looking at this saying hmm you know listening to this episode I realize that I probably need to do something a little bit different than what I'm doing now but I need to build a business case for this because in the whole idea about collecting logs and storing them is quite honestly if nothing ever horrible happened that's a diode all this logging information goes into something and it builds up and it builds up and it's sort of like your 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 mom's attic or hey. the junk room in the basement or something like that. And if you never have to go dig anything out of it, um, so what, who cares? It's only when you need it. And then in my opinion, to create that business case, obviously a lot easier, as you said, if something happens. In the insurance industry, they say nothing helps sell insurance like the house across the street being on fire. Right. But the other thought is, is that how would a CISO or a business leader in the cybersecurity realm be able to create that effective business case in the absence of a nasty event so that they are better positioned to helpfully mitigate the impact of a future event such that they can respond faster and more accurately? So, so I have two thoughts when you say that. The first one is that you can't like count what you don't measure, well, however that saying goes, right? So like if I'm not collecting logs, I actually have no evidence that we're actually safe, right? Not only do I have no evidence to like what patient zero was if we if we had an incident, I, I don't have any proof that we actually didn't have an incident. So so I kind of think that the other thing I think of is is um so so, so Cribble defines uh, the term observability as the capability to ask a question of your logs that you don't know you need to answer them. And so the idea being is that very frequently and this isn't just in security logs but this is in like lots of logs like application logs and like you know traces and metrics like i don't know what i need to ask tomorrow so so considering the cost of like long-term storage data lake type is so cheap uh it's it's not that hard to make the business case for making that spend uh so that i can go ask that question tomorrow now, here's what I'm thinking, and again, you can correct me on this. If you take a look at the developments that we've seen, most notably in the last 12 months or so, with that uh, magic two-letter word, AI, we're now wondering, how about from a solution set, instead of saying, hey, I can go pull all these things out of the basement and go rummage through the boxes that, oh, found the, find the thing I need, using that as sort of a analogy for a human going through or taking a look at it with a search tool, could we have AI constantly scouring this stuff so not only... Are you able to say, hey, go fetch? But as all this stuff gets poured into there to be able to start to build the gestalt of what's going on to say, um, hey, time out, human. 
uh, this, uh, then this, and then this. You sent that, all those logs in here. You never said they were special, but they're indicative of a breach. Uh, there's a yeah. lateral movement going on, and it's slow and slow, and it's sneaky and quiet, and you missed it, but I caught it. Are you seeing that taking place in the industry not right now, or if not, do we want to go on Shark Tank? Um, no, it's too late to go on Shark Tank. I see, I see, like, the industry's going in that direction. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm doing a lot of research for for my clients is, like, well, how should we rethink this data lake architecture so that we can load all this data into vector databases? So that we can load it into, uh, essentially, so we can store it in a way that these LLMs or you know uh, these learning models can can go and take advantage of this data. So I think the last thing to chat about uh, is the the idea of a tax or like a, a premium or enterprise spend to get security functionality. Mm -hmm. And um, and you pointed out the situation where the Chinese. I think it was had uh, found a way to get some certain keys in the Azure or Enter C five ecosystem, and uh, and the federal the U.S. federal government was the was the client, and uh... yeah, right, right, right. And what ended up happening was, uh, if you were like an E five, which is like the top, you know, Microsoft license spend you can make, you were able to get those. You, you had those logs, but otherwise, you know, if you were like even just like an E three plus security or something. You didn't get those events. And so, you know, people are super happy about that, as in not. Uh, and what ended up happening is Microsoft made those events uh, available at, I think, the E3 level. So so if you were if you were making that that investment. Right. Went from E5 to E3. It was Microsoft purview audit that was really, you had to subscribe yep. to pay for that. Plus, uh, had a limit of 90 days. They've extended that to 180. But a lot of that was kind of a do for a push from CISA. Okay, so CISA has done some great stuff, and I've actually got an invitation out. I've been talking to Jen Easterly's office to see if, in her crazy busy schedule, I might be able to get her on our podcast to talk yeah, about yes. a lot of the work that they're doing. But uh, you know, they're they're doing a lot of amazing stuff at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. For those who didn't know what CISA stands for, but anyway, yeah, back to this and about the tax on that. So you want to be careful that information may be available, but a vendor might say, "Yeah, but uh, you know, how much you got?" Um, and so just something to be yeah. aware of. Well, yeah. Now, now look, like it's funny. Like, I, uh, you know, I have a small business. I don't have a hundred users in my environment, and, and but I'm a security guy. I want all the I want all the the bells and whistles. But like, a lot of times, I pay like ninety nine dollars a seat to get SSO or to get like a security logging API or whatever it might be. And so, you know, like I'm a pretty big believer that like, like I don't think it needs to be at the entry free tier. But you know, it, it needs to be like the the business or the pro tier, like that core security functionality that helps protect the the environment. And, and look, like it's good for not just the vendor or not just the user, but it's good for the vendor too. Because if people are implement implementing SSO and like two factor and those types of things, like they're not going to be you know it lessens the chance they're going to be part of a breach. Yeah. So uh, under promise, over deliver, yeah. and your customers will love you. Yeah, and so so there's this there's a site called SSO Tax, which uh, which is like just a funny you know it's a, it's a it's a shaming list of the vendors that charge crazy amounts of money to enable SSO. Uh, so so yeah, but you know, it, like I get it. Like I don't expect everything to be free. People have to eat, but I don't expect it to be ninety nine dollars a month to do it. Like you know, you can get for free on Gmail. And it's a very good point because I think what we're finding out is that multi factor authentication, single sign on. 
go a long, long way toward keeping the bad guys out. Now, what it doesn't do, I mean, what it does is going to help against things like password spraying and things such as that, but it doesn't necessarily help with hacking the user. So I worked a recent case where a uh, user had uh, got a little fake email. It looked like it was from DocuSign or it was from Microsoft saying, hey, your password is going to expire right. in five days. Clicked on it, looked, it took them to some Microsoft lookalike site. Hey, enter your ID and your password. You need to log in. Okay, they got that. And the next thing was, hey, there goes the MFA to their phone, as you would expect. And they keyed in the MFA. Well, what's happening is the attacker is essentially a man in the middle. And you're like, thank you for coughing up your ID, your password, and your MFA creds. I'm in. And then, of course, the CISO, we, you know, on the security side, I get an alert a few minutes later from Microsoft saying, Danger Will Robinson, there's somebody logging in for this really weird country that you can't pronounce. Uh, and so in the in the go and doing triage and things like that. So what we're finding then is our technical skills, our technical defenses, those levels are going up and the attackers aren't going to give up, get a haircut, go commute into work and pay their taxes. They're going to just find a new attack vector and they're looking at the attack surfaces being uh, the, the wetware, the, the carbon-based part of the network instead yeah. of silicon. And a lot of what we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, it's, that's out of scope, but it's just kind of a reminder to folks that even if you had the perfect technology, they say nothing is foolproof because, well, fools are so ingenious and that happens. So any last thoughts you have before we wrap up for today? Well, well, to, to wrap up what you're just saying just now is like, you're literally like selling me zero trust or the need for zero trust. And like zero trust, you know, like, listen to the episode I just recorded this past week on the seven deadly lies that the problem with zero trust is what? is that if I'm in there and I, I convince somebody to let me do a quick assist session because I'm masquerading as IT, I am now in on an approved device with an approved user, an approved login with all the rights and privileges, and zero trust just collapsed because zero trust is really a signed trust. I have a signed trust to a device, to a user, to a particular session, but if somebody can get in there and actually piggyback in on the back of an existing legitimately logged in user on a legitimate session, zero trust out the window. Can I do that from another country? You can do it from anywhere you want. You ever try using Quick Assist? Next time one of us is in Europe, we'll do it. I've done Fair Quick enough. Assist. I was over in Eastern Europe last month and had to do that with somebody and it worked just fine. Yeah. So so look, like I think I think my takeaway of that is like security is a balance between risk management and usability. Yeah. And every business and, and, you know, if I could leave CISOs listening to this with a takeaway is, is that understanding that. So like, you know, if you're working at the NSA, like I, I can almost guarantee you the usability of those networks is much more difficult than, you know, the usability of Macy's or at different places. And so, so it's always a balance between what the organization requires and what the users demand. But as a CISO, you have to toe that line and you have to sell security in the, in exchange for usability a lot of times. And it happens what it is. So, uh, so yeah. Well, JP, this has been great. Um, Greg came catching up with you this past weekend at Chocon. Glad we had a chance to do this again. If you, if you, uh, we were talking about all the back and forth. Uh, but but for our listeners at CISO Tradecraft, we create weekly podcasts to help our listeners increase their knowledge of cybersecurity. Now, if you love learning from us, uh, try hiring us for consulting services. CISO Tradecraft does have a variety of virtual CISO services that we can offer, such as helping you create or update your cybersecurity strategy, leading tabletops with executives to simulate how your organization would respond to a cyber attack, 
performing process improvement activities to fix processes that need improvement, such as third-party procurement, vulnerability management, or third-party risk assessments. And additionally, we also perform custom coaching to help you along with your career to become a stronger CISO. If any of these items are interesting to you and you'd like some more information or some help on that, reach out to us. Go to CISOTradeCraft.com or connect to us directly on LinkedIn. So thank you very much for listening in today. Our guest today has been J.P. Bourget with BlueCycle.net. And we've been talking about security data pipeline, modernizing our SOC ingest. Uh, and so this hopefully would be useful to you. If you like CISO Tradecraft, follow us on LinkedIn. we got more than just podcasts. If you're watching us on YouTube, great. If not, go ahead and subscribe. I think you'll find that we can add a little bit of that uh, to your day as well. And lastly, this is your host, G. Mark Hardy. And uh, until next time, go Bills. Go Bills. And go stay Bills. safe out there.